Thanks for checking out this week's edition of the Best of Podcasts on this week's show, a conversation with Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post on some NBA topics. We talked a little bit about how we thought Bradley Beal was going to make the All-Star team. Turns out that didn't happen, but there's a lot of other stuff that is still relevant as well. Jamison Crowder, Redskins receiver, sat down with him one-on-one. You'll hear that conversation. We will have Brian Curtis of The Ringer to talk about his piece on how sports writing has become a liberal profession. And then that interview from my show Friday night on WQAM in Miami. Then my Sunday show discussion of that piece. Two segments worth, a bit of a longer podcast today. And then last but not least, a bit of nonsense. Kyrie Irving, come on, bro. The earth is round. Here's the show. Greg Hoffman with you tonight here on The Fan. We go out to the phone now and bring in my man Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post. Tim, it has been an absolutely crazy NBA day. We'll get to some of the other big stories, um, or at least another angle of, of some of the big stories in a minute, but I guess one of them would be Kevin Love is out six weeks, and the local angle on that is it potentially opens up an all-star spot for Bradley Beal. We know it opens up the spot. Do, do you think Beal's going to get it? I do, Craig. I do think he's going to get it. I think if you look around the East, you know, there's probably three guys who have the best chances of getting that spot. You know, Brad is obviously one of them. Carmelo Anthony's another, and Dwight Howard's another. Uh, Carmelo has kind of openly said he doesn't really want to go. Um, and, I, you know, I think the fact that the Knicks have been so bad, uh, despite the fact that Carmelo has actually been great over the last several weeks, I think he's averaged like 26 a game over the last couple months. Um, I, I would think that I would think that probably he's not going to get the pick. And, for as good as Dwight has been, I, I still don't think he's quite matched up to the way Brad has played. I mean, him and John, John Wall have really, you know, led the Wizards on this incredible hot streak they're on. They've won 14 out of 16, two losses they have, or that tip-in at the buzzer in Detroit. And then when LeBron made that crazy turnaround uh, three-pointer to send the game to overtime against Cleveland, uh, cup, you know, recently back at Verizon Center. So, you know, I think that given the way the Wizards are playing, given how well Brad has played, um, the fact that Jabari Parker, another guy who I think had a chance to maybe get that spot, has unfortunately gotten hurt. Um, I think you kind of factor all that in. And, and to me, you know, I think the choice is pretty clear that, that Brad should get that spot, which, you know, given, given where things were for him, you know, as recently as this summer when people kind of questioned the contract he got and uh, the way things started for the Wizards going 2-8, and eight, it would be pretty great accomplishment for them to have two All-Stars in the All-Star game. Yeah, no doubt about it. And he's, he's played so well since he's been back. They've been right there neck and neck with Cleveland in the East. Of course, this all comes off of the fact that Kevin Love is going to be out six weeks. He's got uh, minor knee surgery coming. Easy for me to say it's not my knee. Uh, but w- when you look at Cleveland's season, how much of an impact does this really have so long that he comes back fully healthy and is ready for the playoffs? Well, that's a million-dollar question, right? I mean, if if the Cavs are healthy, if J.R. Smith is back, if if Kevin Love is back, you know, and you know, they, they should be the team that clearly gets through the playoffs and gets to the finals without any trouble. But, but this is the thing about injuries, though. Like, you look, at, you look at JR, right? You know, let's say he comes back in mid to late March like he's supposed to. Well, that gives him about two weeks to get ready, and then the playoffs start. You know, if Kevin Love is out for six weeks, that means if, if everything goes perfectly, he's out until April 1st. So, at that point, you're just getting back from a knee surgery – um, you've got two weeks till the playoffs start. Now they're obviously going to roll over wherever they play in the first round. You know, the real trouble wouldn't start until they play in the second round, but you know, if there's some kind of a setback, if there, if there's anything that happens all of a sudden, maybe he isn't quite at hundred percent. If they're in the second round against say a Toronto or a Washington or a Boston, um, or an Atlanta. And, you know, do I think that Cleveland, you know, loses any of those teams? No, but if you start to add up all the minutes, LeBron James is already playing. All the minutes Kyrie Irving's already playing. Now they have two of their top four guys out. Um, you, you start to you start to add up all of the stuff that's starting to work against Cleveland. And you know, at some point, you have to wonder: Do these guys just run out of steam a little bit and and go into the playoffs? You know, not at the same level that they've been in the past. And, and yeah, maybe that allows them. Maybe they still get through the East anyway because they are pretty significantly better than all these other teams if if healthy. But you look at the matchup with the Warriors that we all expect them to have. If they're not at 100% and everybody's not at 100% peak condition in the finals, I don't see any way they win that series, barring something happening on the other side. So if LeBron, no, LeBron's saying he's going to carry the Cavs for the next two months, well, he's already playing more minutes than anybody in the league at 32 on, on the back of six straight trips to the finals. Is that right? Really he's what mad about it, too. He doesn't to want to be playing all those minutes team? already. 
Yeah, exactly. Like it's just it's it's there's there's already stereo dealing with all of this stuff. They don't have a deep enough roster as it is. So it's like it's it's less about is Cleveland, you know, like Cleveland right now looks like they're gonna get everybody back in time for the playoffs, but if if for the next two months, because they have they have these guys out, LeBron has to carry a bigger load than he needs to, that's the thing that when you look ahead to a potential final showdown could be the thing that really cost them. Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post with me, Craig Hoffman, here on Overtime on 106.7 The Fan. So does this change the way Cleveland uh, approaches the trade deadline? Obviously, any trade involving love is now off the table, and and depending on who you believe, and you would obviously know much bunch better than I do. I'm just reading other reports. You do actual reporting. If there were any (laughs) trades um, that were on the table with love that were valid anyway, but now those are gone. So how, how does this change Cleveland's approach at the trade deadline as Washington and others try to chase them down? Well, I don't think it changes a lot. I mean, look, I, I, don't, I never really bought a lot into the, the talk that they were going to trade Kevin Love potentially. That, at the same time, if they do decide to trade for Carmelo Anthony, the Knicks, I'm sure, would still take Kevin Love, even after this knee surgery. So, um, you know, I, there is the chance, I guess, that that trade could somehow come together and happen. I, I really don't expect it to anyway, and I didn't if he was healthy. Um, but setting that aside, Cleveland just doesn't really have a lot of assets, right? Like, you look at their – they traded just about all their picks – they, they, you know, David Griffin, their general manager, has done a remarkable job of maximizing the assets at his disposal to, to get as many pieces as he can. Um, but they don't have a lot left to trade. They don't have a lot of salaries really to trade because basically they have their star guys and then a bunch of guys making nothing. Um, so I would say that probably the best chance for them to add somebody is going to be the same way as the Warriors, which is after the trade deadline, if anybody gets bought out, you know, Cleveland is going to be going hard after him, and Golden State's going to be going hard after him to try to get an extra guy at the end of their bench. And, you know, if, if a guy like, you know, T.J. Tucker or Darren Williams or Nick Young or somebody gets bought out, maybe, you know, maybe Cleveland can go get a guy like that. But otherwise, I just don't see them making the kind of significant impact trade they'd have to because it would require them giving up some piece like Kevin Love or Tristan Thompson or Iman Shumpert that's a huge part of what they're already doing. Clearly what the potential Cavs-Warriors finals needs is Swaggy P. As if that wouldn't be as entertaining <laughs> as could possibly be already, please just give – let's inject Nick Young into the middle of that series. Well, it'd be, it'd be great. It'd be great if, say, like – like there, there was also talk for a while that Deion Waiters might be – Yes! Clock. Like, imagine if you could – imagine if Deion Waiters wound up – even if he got traded to, say, Washington or someplace, like just uh, Deion Waiters in a big playoff series. Because, look, you saw last year when he was at the Thunder, like – Waiters, waiters could be a nice piece as a smaller piece for a team, but, but yeah, I mean, some guy like him or Nick Young in the playoffs just doing, doing crazy things. You know, it just it just would make it just would make things wildly entertaining. There is not a softer spot in any media member's heart than the one that is in my heart for Dion Waiters. We were at Syracuse together. <laughs> I, I shamelessly love him. Uh, we, there's all the talk about Waiters Island. I have the biggest house on it, and I will fight anyone who wants to try to take that house. Uh, Tim Bontemps is with me here on The Fan. Craig Hoffman with you tonight on Overtime. Uh, the other big story of the day uh, is Serge Ibaka is, is now on his way to Toronto. Uh, he was traded, obviously, to Orlando in the offseason. That's been a disaster. Right. Orlando is trying to figure out what they're doing. I really don't care about them because they stink. To me, this move matters for Toronto. This is a <laughs> real addition for Toronto that matters. Uh, yeah. what, what do you make of this move, and could they really have done much better? Well... I think, I think Orlando matters a little bit, and here's why. I'll get, to, I'll get to Toronto in a second. For teams like Washington and Atlanta and Boston and all these teams at the top of the, both the East and the West, right, the, the fundamental problem they've had, uh, and especially for the Wizards, who like we were, like, they could really use another bench piece, right, a lot of these teams that are out of the playoff picture in both the East and the West haven't really owned up to the fact that they're not making the playoffs, and if they do, they're going to get creamed as the eighth seed, right? Mm-hmm. So – for a team like Orlando to say, you know what, we're kind of we're, we're we're clearly not making the playoffs. We're going to trade Serge Ibaka. If other teams start to think that way, there is a much better chance that a team like the Wizards say can get the bench piece they need, and teams like Boston and, and Atlanta and these other teams can can get some pieces to improve their team. So I do think it matters that Orlando gave up to see if other teams start to follow suit. That being said, you're obviously right. For Toronto, you know, getting Serge Ibaka is the headliner in this trade. Uh, Serge Ibaka is not the player he was a few years ago. He's really never been the same player since uh, he injured his calf in the 2014 playoffs. He came back from that. He's never quite had the same uh, bounce and athleticism really ever since then. 
But that being said, for, for all the people who are kind of poo-pooing this and saying the surge isn't any good, the Raptors have been at their best the last couple of years when they've had Patrick Patterson to power forward, a guy who's a stretch four who can shoot threes and can space the floor and be athletic enough to guard people on defense. Even if Serge isn't at his elite best anymore, he still is a guy who this year is shooting 39% from three. He's a 6'10 guy who's athletic enough. He's still blocking a shot in half a game. And he's replacing the minutes played by rookie Pascal Siakam and Jared Sullinger, who both stink. So for at least half the game, Toronto was playing a negative player at power forward. Now they have a positive player. So with him and Patrick Patterson, now you've got 48 minutes of shooting. You now can play Serge at center if you want and have two guys who can shoot and, and play a little defense inside. So I definitely think it helps Toronto. Um, I don't know if it lifts them back up over Boston and Washington to the two spot, but you look at those three teams and they all, I think, need to go into this next week thinking they need to make another move. And the fact that Toronto went out and got surge, you know, now it's on Washington to try to go get a bench piece and it's on, uh, it's on, it's on Boston to try to go get some help def- defensively and rebounding wise inside to try to improve their team. And we'll see if either one of them can go do that and try to match what Toronto did. Let's, for the sake of the question that I'm going to ask you, say that neither team is able to do that. Washington stays pat. Uh, Boston stays pat. If you power rank right. teams two, three, four, five, uh, so Boston, Toronto, Washington, Atlanta, and who you, Tim Bontemps, think is the best of those uh, in, in order, how would you rank those teams moving forward for the rest of the season? Really close. It's really close. I think Atlanta's a clear fit. Um, I, I don't really – Atlanta, Atlanta Atlanta's a nice, has a nice roster. I don't really see them getting, beating any of those teams in the first round. So I'm going to set them aside. I, I think depending on matchups, all three of those teams, Toronto, Washington, and, and, and Boston, could all potentially beat each other. They're very close. I would say probably Toronto gets the nod right now as the second team for me. Um, they have more playoff experience than both Washington and – Boston and getting a Baca, you know, really does, I think, help them, you know, even if he isn't that elite player anymore, he still, he still is a big upgrade on what they had and does give them a lot more versatility inside that they didn't have before. So I would give them a slight edge and then I would, it's really tough. I would say probably if I was going to pick a team in the series, I'd probably pick Washington over Boston, but um, right now, but they're all, they're all very close. And to me, the biggest, the biggest thing any of those teams could do would be, Obviously, let's set aside Boston making a huge swing for a guy like Jimmy Butler, because I don't think they're doing that. Um, but if Washington can get a legitimate bench piece, you know, a guy that can come off the bench and score for them, that would be as big as Toronto getting Serge Ibaka. Because, you know, Washington's starting lineup is arguably the best lineup in the league this season. It's been fantastic. It's played more minutes than anybody. It's got a huge, hugely positive lineup. And, uh, you know, but what they don't have is anything off their bench. I mean, in that Cleveland game, they scored 135 points. 119 came from the starting lineup. So they need somebody that can come in off that second unit and create for them. So if they could go get a guy that could do that to go with Kelly Oubre, who's been really good, and Jan Mahimi who's now getting healthy, get a little bit of production from Jason Smith, all of a sudden that bench unit looks much different. And, you know, combined with their starting lineup, which can play heavy minutes in the playoffs, and everybody has that second day, that day off of rest in between games, you know, Washington's going to be a really tough out. And, and that, that, could be, that could give them the same kind of oomph that this Serge Ibaka trade could for Toronto. All right, that was the power rankings question. Now for my last question, another hokey sports talk trick of making you put a percentage <laughs> on something. Um, the percentage chance that Washington is able to make that move as as far as you know here on February 14th is what? Um, hmm. I'm going to say I'm going to say 80%. Oh wow. I'd be I'd be I'd be pretty surprised if Washington stands pat. Um, they, they know they, have a, they need a piece, and you look at them, and like they, they're, they're in really good shape, right? Like Otto Porter has been fantastic this year. He's going to get a max contract. Um, he's, been, he's been everything they could have hoped for. Uh, Bradley Beal, we talked about, he should, I think, replace Kevin Love in the All-Star game. John Wall has been sensational. Uh, you know, Mahimi's coming back. Like they, they, they have been playing so well for the last two months. Like they, they have to look at this and say, like, like, I mean, you know, Craig, it would be such a huge deal for the Wizards to get to the Eastern Conference Finals like Toronto did last year. Like, Toronto get, breaking through and finally making a playoff run was such a huge thing for Toronto and for that city. And, you know, for, for Washington, which hasn't made the Conference Finals in 40 years, since the 70s, you know, during the, the, the heyday of the Bullets, for, to, get, to, to get another piece to really make a concerted effort at trying to get that deep in the playoffs – 
I think it would be a huge deal for the city and a huge deal for that franchise. So, I mean, look, like I said, like I said earlier about Orlando, if, if the market just doesn't materialize and too many of these teams just decide that they can't, you know, give up on trying to get the eighth seed, maybe they can't do it. But I just, I have a hard time thinking that between now and next Thursday, Boston or uh, Washington isn't going to be able to find some way to get that piece to try to give themselves a leg up on, on Boston and, and Toronto in this race to, try to meet Cleveland in all likelihood in the Eastern Conference Finals. Been 40 years since the Wizards slash Bullets. It's been about 19 years since any team in this city has made the Conference Finals, so it'd be big for that the city the for sure. That is the crazy stat, man. That, I, mean, that, I mean, when I hear that about, about D.C. sports, like... It's nuts. Like, let alone not winning a championship, not getting to the Conference Finals, because that's what? That's since... That's 98. Since the, the Caps, made the, Caps yeah. made the Cup Finals. Yeah. Like... It's completely insane that nobody's made a conference final. Well, especially because there's been teams that have been good. Years. Like, the Caps right, have been that, really good for a long time, and the right. Nats have been really Capitals good for a long time. Right, right, right. Well, and especially the Nationals. Like, all they got to do is win one season. Right, like, right. And they've been in the playoffs all these times. Yeah, and, and the Capitals make the playoffs every year. They have the best record in the league, it feels like, half the time. It, it is crazy. So, yeah, that's why, that's why I think at the end of the day, if Washington needs to trade a first-round pick to move off one of their bad contracts like Sandra Nicholson and, and go get some guy that's going to help them off the bench, I, it's just hard for me to see them saying we can't part with a first-round pick when our core guys are, what, I mean, Wall's 26, Beal's 23, Wall, or Porter's 23, 24. Like, all those guys are going to be there for a while. Like, if you can get a piece to go with them that's going to help you win right now and, and really try to make a run like that, which would, you know, like we just said, would be massive for the city and for the franchise – I just think it's some it's somehow, some way, they're going to find a way to get that guy between now and next Thursday. I'm glad you ended that on optimism because otherwise, we just made the entire audience cry on Valentine's Day, and that's that's not good. Uh, Tim <laughs> Bonteps, Tim Bonteps, you can read him in the Washington Post. Follow him on Twitter at Tim Bonteps. Uh, Tim, uh, you know I always enjoy uh, having you on. We'll do it again here in the next couple of weeks as we move towards the deadline. Uh, enjoy enjoy All Star Weekend, and, and I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely, Craig. Always happy to come on, man. Just hit me whenever. Jameson Crowder in studio with me. Craig Hoffman here. It's overtime on 106.7 The Fan. Uh, how, how's this, this recovery time been for you? I know you're going to get back down to training here in a little bit, but how's the body feel after a, a full NFL season, your second? Uh, my body feels, it feels good. Um, you know, fortunately this year I didn't have any uh, significant injuries. Uh, you know, just you know, just the lumps and bruises that come with the game, but uh, you know, knock on wood, no, no, uh, no big time, huge injuries. So, um, you know, getting through year two, um, you know, healthy was a uh, was always always one of the things that you want to get through. So I was able to maintain and make it through. So uh, my body feels good, and um, like as you said, I'm you know <clears throat> getting ready to head down to start training in these next few weeks. For you, the last couple of weeks have been pretty easy. Go home, spend time with family, relax, recover, necessary time for an NFL player. Uh, for us, uh, those who follow the team, it's been crazy. There's been a whole bunch of coaching changes. There's been personnel questions. Uh, how much do you pay attention? Obviously, you know, you're having a new offensive coordinator is a big deal. Uh, but how much do you pay attention to the transaction market of whether it's Deshaun and Pierre or Kirk and what's going on with that? And then obviously the coaching changes. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, with the coaching changes, uh, you know, I'm I'm always looking to see, you know, who we're, who we're bringing in and who's who's going. Um, I think, you know, for the most part, I think that they've pretty much got everything into place. I'm not exactly sure, but um, you know, with the transactions that and everything that's going on with, you know, the guys, those guys like Deshaun and Kirk and uh, and um, Pierre, you know, I'm obviously paying attention to that. I'm not really all into it, but I, you know, when I get a chance, I look and see, um, you know, what's going on because obviously. Those three guys are uh, are huge are huge pieces in our offense. So um, you know it would definitely be uh, great to get all three back. But um, you know whatever happens, you know happens. So I'm, I'm I'm hoping that we can get all those guys back and um you know and be a a, a great offense uh, next year. Jamison Crowder in studio with us on the fan. What, what does it mean to you? Matt Cavanaugh is going to be your offensive coordinator, but Jay's going to be calling plays. How do you think the offense changes with that dynamic and Sean moving out to LA? Um, I mean I, I don't I don't think it changes much. Uh, you know, because um, obviously uh, it's still all the all the people that's as far as offensive wise, still all the people that's been here. So it's not like there's anyone new that hasn't been in the building. Uh, you know, guys just you know moving to different positions. So um, I think that uh, you know the offense will pretty much um, you know be be the same as far as play calling as it's, as as it's been. And um, I mean, I'm not sure, but that's just my opinion. I don't think it changed much. But um, you know, I'm just looking forward to it. Um, you know, get back to OTAs and whenever that comes around, and and uh, you know, going from there.
I got a quick story that I want to relay to the audience. You'll you'll know the story because you were involved in the play, and then I just kind of want to ask you about the detail-oriented nature of the game. The Cowboys game two years ago, your rookie year, there was a play, screen pass, Sean Lee blew it up. Remember the play? The, the Monday night game. Yeah, 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 right, 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 I remember. I, I remember asking Jay about it after the game, and he said, well, one of the things that happened, the timing of the play was off because right. you had taken one step forward instead of three, and mm-hmm. it was that, and then not when you come back and loop around on a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of a seminal moment for you? Because I know it was something that Jay was really passionate about of, like, these are the details that are going to win and lose us games. Was that right. play... I'm now ask, getting to ask you about it for the first time. Was that play kind of a, a revelatory moment for you to go like, wow, these are the margins in the NFL. This is how detailed I have to be to be successful. Um, well, I wouldn't necessarily say that play because, um, you know, that play kind of happened, I don't know. Whenever. Also, Sean Lee made a ridiculous play that only yeah, Sean yeah, Lee Yeah, he makes. did. But, um, but I mean, you, you definitely have to be detailed. Uh, I, I don't think that was the play that – you know, really made me say, like, wow, you have to really be detailed because that, that happened. I can't remember when we played them on that Monday night. It was kind of mid-season, later, season, later yeah. in the season. But, um, you know, it was just a mental error on my part. Um, You know, I, I knew that, you know, I needed to go push that, you know, that screen pass with up, up, whatever it was, three three steps, and I didn't. And, uh, you know, and, I, and that, you know, was part of the reason why, you know, uh, Sean Lee was able to dissect the play as quick as he did and was able to make that play. So, um you know, prior to that, I knew how detailed. <coughs> excuse me, how detailed I needed to be. It was just, um, you know, just one of those things I had. In what we call a mental error. Yeah, well, we'll say, well, it was, was there a moment maybe earlier in the season that I mean, it, the game happened so fast that those mental errors are going to happen because the game is moving so fast. Was right. there a, even if it was back in OTAs or training camp where you're like, whoa, this is different. This is faster. That you ha- you cannot cheat the game in any way like right. maybe you could get away with in college. Um, I really can't. I really can't even think. I can't pinpoint a moment. Um. I really can attest that uh, in college it was the same way as far as at Duke, you know, the standards that we, that coach cut. And uh, at the time, uh, Coach Scotty Montgomery, which was my receiver coach my junior my junior year, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the, the standard they held us to. So, um, you know, I, I really, you know, attribute that to them. I knew that, you know, playing this game, you have to be detailed. You have to, you know, have the right steps. And uh, you have to, you know, know what you're supposed to be doing, when you need you're supposed to be doing it, and whatever else, small detail that's – within the coaching. So, um, you know, I really – I can say that at Duke is, you know, where yeah. I really got got hold to it. But, and, uh, and they really kind of groomed me for the NFL. So once I got here and, uh, you know, I was learning those plays and learning those details, uh, what I needed to do, that uh, I was on them. And, um, you know, every now and then, you know, it's just human nature. You know, we make mistakes. Um, you know, mental errors are going to happen. It's just a part of a game. So I said the next perfect show I have will be the first. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, happens, it happens in every business. Jamison Crowder is in studio with us because he just wrapped up an event downstairs mm-hmm. uh, with DJ Flex from WPGC, mm-hmm. a Black History Month event. And, you know, obviously that wound up dipping into some political avenues. I just want to ask you one question about being in D.C. kind of on that way. Um, because you are here, and I know for a lot of the offseason, you're not here. You're either back home in North Carolina, training down with Exos in Florida, or wherever you may be, traveling, taking a little, a little vacation is, is well-earned. But being in D.C. where the government is centered and being someone who cares about what is going on in your community and, and your nation, do, do you think about ever reaching out to a congressman, a, a someone like that, a, a government type of person who is in D.C. and trying to take advantage of where you are? Is it something you've either A, done or B, thought about? Um, I, well, A, I haven't done it. Um, I haven't done it. Um, and B, I, I haven't really put much thought into it. Um, you know, that you bring it up, I, you know, I may or, uh, you know, I feel like, um, like you said, a lot of times in the offseason, I'm I'm in North Carolina and uh, or away and, and your ske- your uh, schedule during the season doesn't exactly have a lot of free time uh, right I know and that, and, that, <laughs> and, that, and that's what I was about to say you know during the season it's you know it's tough to um, you know schedule you know those types of things to, uh, you know really get you know some good time and get some you know good results or whatever you're trying to uh, whatever you're trying to get so uh, I haven't I haven't thought about it but um you know hopefully in the, in the near future as I you know continue to um, you know make my career hopefully here in Washington I can uh you know set up some things to meet with you know certain people um <clears throat> within you know the government or just certain you know officials within um you know here in DC or whether it might be back home I never know so 
You know. Right. That's the other thing, too. There's plenty going on in North Carolina that, yeah. that's being talked about down there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, really impressive stuff for you, from you downstairs. I know that some of the video and some of the audio is going to be up on, on our site and WPGC site, so people can check that out soon. Okay. Appreciate you spending a, a few minutes with me up here, and uh, best of luck uh, with the training, and, and we'll see you again back. OTAs will be here before we know it. Oh, yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> Brian Curtis writes about media and more for The Ringer. Of course, that's Bill Simmons' site. Uh, most of you familiar with that. And he's written some really, really interesting stuff since that site launched. I always enjoy his work. And, and today he wrote a piece entitled, Sports Writing Has Become a Liberal Profession. Here's how it happened. I was really impressed with the piece. It made me think. Uh, I sent Brian an email, and lucky enough for me, he responded about two minutes later. And now he's with us here on the Toyota of Hollywood hotline. Brian, uh, I guess good afternoon to you out in Los Angeles. How are you doing, man? Yeah, sorry it took me two minutes. Uh, that's slow for me. Usually, right. uh, just a minute. It'll be faster next time. All right, I'll, I'm going to hold you to that. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of questions about this piece and, and kind of your vantage point as the person who wrote it. And obviously, the, as, as people could guess from the title, the premise of the piece is that sports media has become openly left-leaning. And you explain uh, this in the piece, kind of how this happened. Um, but, but for those that haven't had a chance to read it to kind of set the table for the rest of our conversation, it, it, briefly, uh, why do you think this has happened? Well, there's a number of reasons. I mean, I think it, it probably dawned on me like it dawns on a lot of people, which is, you know, when, when Trump had his immigration ban a couple of weeks ago and all those protesters were filling up the airport, I was reading sports Twitter and I was reading lefty political Twitter. And at some point I couldn't quite determine what I was reading. It all seemed kind of like the same thing, right? But I think, you know, among the reasons is really that what we consider to be sports writing today is a lot different than it was 20 or 30 years ago, right? Back then it was in newspapers and newspapers didn't let you put that kind of stuff in. You know, they didn't let a lot of people have an opinion. Well, now, you know, everything's on the Internet. There's a lot looser. We have Twitter, so you can write your football column and then tweet about politics on the side. And I think a lot of it's just that we live in a very different media universe than we did 20, 30 years ago. As we said, though, it's not just that it's gotten more political or perhaps uh, more accurately, people's political views uh, are out there more now. It's that it's leaning completely and totally to the left. And I'll ask you the non-leading version of the question. Is this a problem? (laughs) Is it a problem? Um, Two ways to look at that question. I should tell the people that I lean to the left, too, right? So it's not unhappy. In the... the, uh, Effort of transparency, so do I. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to ask non-leaning questions. <laughs> I, like, I like the way you went at that. Very nonpartisan way to ask a question. So I, I try my best. If we had to find problems with it, I think there's a couple of things. I think one is that sports sharp writing, be it sports writing or other writing that you disagree with, helps you sharpen your other opinions, right? Your own opinions, I should say, right? So if conservative-leaning sports writing disappeared off the face of the earth completely... Uh, there would be this chance that maybe we have to ask ourselves, wait a second, why do I think college football players ought to be paid, right? Why do I think head injuries are the great scandal of the NFL today? Why do I think the Washington Redskins nickname is racist and should be replaced by something else? You know, and you start to kind of forget even what your own reasons for those things are, right? So I think that's part of it, too. I mean, I think, I mean to me, if I had to pick a thing to say what's wrong with it, but I think so much progress has been made on so many issues, and the center of gravity moving like it has, I think it's mostly a good thing. Brian Curtis of The Ringer is our guest here on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. I'm Craig Hoffman in for Alex Dono tonight. Brian with us on the Toyota of Hollywood hotline. Toyota of Hollywood has moved two blocks south of their old location, so make sure you get there now two blocks south of the old location. I would say, Brian, the, the biggest thing that, that kind of hit me and made me think uh, during or while reading your piece is realizing that some of those political ideologies and, and using some of the examples you just mentioned uh, really do infiltrate the actual sports writing and the sports topics themselves. When did you kind of have that light bulb go on? I think it's been the last couple of years when you, when you saw basically – you know, everybody in, the, again, and I don't want to use this term too, too, too loosely, but just about every major columnist in the country come to the same conclusion about the NCAA, right? That's an issue that's been around in sports writing for about 100 years. I'm not kidding about it. Literally 100 years when it comes to college football amateurism and then also Olympic amateurism every four years. It's been a big, big argument. I remember as a kid seeing people on both sides of it. But all of a sudden now, everybody, just about everybody thinks that college football players should be paid, right? And I want to say, wait a second. 
the center of gravity really has moved on these things. When you saw Michael Sam and Jason Collins and other LGBT athletes being basically w- welcomed with completely open arms, it wasn't even they're doing an argument about this anymore, right? I think then you see that the world's changed a lot. Um. Another thing you point out, uh, which is interesting, too, is kind of the, I guess, the social consciousness, I would call it, of of sports writing now and sports commentary now, where a lot more people are putting sports not in a vacuum where we try to ignore the world around uh, an event, a sport, uh, an athlete, whatever. Do you think there, though, is a place where sports writing can exist in that vacuum, a safe space, if you will, for (laughs) sports writing to exist, to use a phrase that you used in the piece? Yeah, I mean, sure, right. There's lots of different there's lots of different forms of sports writing, right? And even me, a guy who's really interested in politics and in the intersection of politics and sports, I still like to read my University of Texas recruiting news, right? And I'm not sure I need to, you know, have every 17 year old linebacker from North Texas ask whether he supports Trump or Hillary Clinton, right? It's okay to have that out. I think a lot of sports writing is just going to be totally apolitical. Sure, right? your Dolphins report, you know, your power rankings in the NFL, your fantasy football stuff. It's not like politics is going to drench everything. But there are so many opportunities. I mean, look at the Super Bowl the other day, right? I kind of thought, okay, this is going to be the three hours in the United States where we don't think about Donald Trump, where Donald Trump is not topic A, right? And look what happens, right? He's interviewed in the pregame show. Uh, We talk about Colin Kaepernick, who Trump openly opposed in the pregame show. There's uh, all we found that a lot of the patriots aren't going to go to the White House, right, to, to participate in the photo op. So you can't really get away from him, you know, at the end of the day. And I think it kind of drenches everything now. Brian Curtis of The Ringer with us here on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. All right, a couple of quotes from the piece I want to ask you about. Uh, if this is a quote directly from, again, the piece uh, on the ringer house or sports writing has become a liberal profession. Here's how it happened. Quote, if liberals have a longstanding delusion, it's that the presentation of hard data about everything from climate change to voter fraud will win the masses to their cause. But within sports writing, this is actually true. Why, why do you think that breaks through that overwhelming amount of data breaks through in sports where uh, anecdotal uh, things may be stronger in every day-to-day life? I think two reasons. One is that the numbers on some of these things got so huge. You know, it was easy to say uh, back in the old days about college football, well, you know, the college athlete gets a scholarship, he gets his room and board, he gets his meals paid for. You know, maybe that's a pretty good deal for him. But then we see, oh, wait, the SEC just signed this gigantic millions and millions and billions of dollars uh, worth of TV contracts, right? The BCS, and now at the playoffs, signed this giant TV deal with ESPN. The numbers got so big that I think eventually people start to come around. The other way I'd say is with emotion, right? Because when, when we have this parade of NFL players that's suffering from head injuries, CTE, and those kinds of things, and you see these guys in front of you, it's not an abstraction anymore, right? It really brings it home, and after you see about you know, a few dozen of those guys, you start to say, wait a second, maybe head injuries is a really big problem. Maybe football has a fundamental problem with it, or at least you start to think those thoughts. So that's a way to me that that gets in front of your face and you begin to sort of change minds a little bit. Another quote I wanted to ask you about, this one, it's, I just this made me think and like I literally stopped reading the piece and then just said I, I hope I have him on so I can ask him about it uh, <laughs> you, you said uh, if it hasn't seeped into the preceding paragraphs I'm a liberal sports writer myself which you said at the at the top of this interview as well um, continuing the quote the new world suits me just fine would it be nice to have David from or Ross uh, Ross do that I probably pronounced his name wrong apologies to Ross uh, of sports writing but making wrong-headed but interesting arguments about NCA amateurism sure as long as nobody believed them. To me, that seems paradoxical. Can you, can you explain that more? I'm being a little bit snide there, you know. But I, mean, <laughs> but I think it goes back you to You snobby point. liberal, you. Oh, my, my, left, uh, my East, uh, West Coast elite, right? Um, yes. No, but I think it goes back to the point I made earlier. You know, it's, to me, it's so great that so many writers have moved into this, into this spot, you know. But at the same time, you think, well, wait a second, if we had opposition... We had a really clever writer writing from a conservative point of view, or in this case, like an anti-amateurism point of view. You may be able to convince a lot of people, right? So, you know, <laughs> do we want do we really want to swing the pendulum back? I'm all for diversity now, but I say that mostly kiddingly. If there was somebody who really had the intellectual chops, I'd love to read them, and they'd be right at the top of my Twitter feed for sure. 
Brian Curtis from The Ringer with us to discuss the piece that he wrote today for that site. Sports writing has become a liberal profession. Here's how it happened. Um, I think an interesting, and I'm, I'll admit, I'm on some level asking this selfishly as someone you observe the media uh, with a keen eye. So I, I'm on some level asking this selfishly because when I, I mean, it could be a passing comment that I didn't even meet. Like you mentioned you know, whether it's President Trump or anyone else that is is in any single way connected to politics. And you surely hear from the side that even if you don't mention anything in terms of a political view, that that deems themselves opposite of you. And and there is that very loud sect of society um, that wants to make it known that they are not okay with you talking about the political whatever. And then I think to my group of friends, um, some of whom are in sports media, obviously, because I am and and I know a lot of people in the business and they're my friends, and some of whom are not. And and I think that there's also a group of fans uh, and just a group of people on both sides of the aisle, really, in the last 18 months to two years who have become much, much more interested in politics. And those people also have other interests like sports. So do you have any inkling of the the viewer, the listener, the consumer, the reader, and, and how much they want sports and politics mixed at this point? Because we tend to hear, I think, most loudly from the people that don't. <laughs> the stick-to-sports crowd, right? Right. Now, I think what you've hit on is the next fascinating question that all of us that work in this business are going to have to deal with, right? Which is, okay, we're talking about sports like this. We're tweeting like this. Is our audience going to follow us because I think right now, and I say in this piece that sports writers right now, I believe are way to the left of, of normal readers right now. Right. And when we're talking about one group, right. Versus another group, I believe they're way to the left. Sports radio is a little bit more of a mixed bag. I think you see a lot more, a lot more of the spectrum of political opinions, even on, even in the sports style, right. We could find shows in Boston or whatever, plenty of shows where Donald Trump is getting a very, very fair hearing. Let's just put it that way. Um, but I think the the question becomes, let's say you're a reader. Let's say you disagree with me on politics. I better be really, really good at writing sports or just writing if you're going to follow me, right? Because I think it's if if you're if it if sports content, if the writing, if the radio becomes so drenched in this stuff, and the person disagrees so wildly with the viewpoint, yeah, there is a point where they're just going to go away. Or by the way, somebody with the opposite viewpoint is going to come in and take those readers away. You know, so I think I think all these things are within the spectrum. And then, you know, when I talk to people at ESPN and FS1, what we would call really mainstream kind of media organizations, they don't want their people dealing with politics. They really don't, because they yeah. think, oh, if I if they deal with politics, the only thing that's going to happen is we're going to drive people away. Right? Somebody is going to be offended. Somebody's going to be chased away. Right. And I've I've had a discussion with one of my bosses at, at CBS Radio and he, his thought is we're a steakhouse. People come here for steak. We're going to give them steak. <laughs> and meaning that, you know, for sports radio, we're going to talk about sports. I think this is a your article is a good exception because it's talking it's in many ways tackling this this very issue and the people that and, and obviously I'll open to, to feedback after uh, we, we say goodbye on, on this call and see what <laughs> listeners say, think, which I'm sure will go this segment, yeah. Go go swimmingly. Um, but I just, it's, it's interesting to me. Cause then I also think if, if that seems like a very safe way, then are you to the crowd that does want it mixed? Uh, do you seem ignorant because you're ignoring the world around you? So well, there's I, a paradox there as well. That's absolutely right. Because look, right now the president of the United States is topic a, whether you love him or hate him or feel somewhere in between, he's topic a in the world. And I think a lot of people, you know, we, we just spent a whole fall not watching football allegedly because our eyes were glued to CNN, right? So if you have a sports commentator and he's just purely focusing on football or baseball, so I think there is something in a lot of people that go, wait a second, there is this whole other thing. There's this whole other game raging in the White House press room right now, don't we? My eyes are going that way. And if they don't at least dignify it and kind of admit that they know that's going on too, I think it puts them in a very, very funny situation. Last question for Brian Curtis of The Ringer here on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. I'm Craig Hoffman in for Dono tonight. And, Brian, I read your piece and then immediately after uh, read Kent Babb's piece on Greg Popovich. Did you by chance read that today? I haven't, no. Okay, so just for for both you and for the audience, the premise of the piece is that Popovich has, I don't want to say found his voice uh, in some of the social uh 
talk that he's done, some of the uh, the dialogue that he's he's had over the past six months or so, uh, but has certainly used his voice more in expressing his displeasure with uh, the way the executive branch is currently being run. And I just I thought there was an interesting paradox somewhere in there about how Popovich is a former military guy and he's he's obviously made his incredibly successful coaching career by getting people to buy in and that thought of leadership from the front and all of that and uh, some of the ideas that were presented in your piece of the liberal ideas of you know worker empowerment and things like that that have seeped their way into sports writing that we see many more pieces and many more talk radio hosts taking the players point of view than the traditional team organizational point of view and I thought that paradox of uh, philosophy goes is on one hand and then like what I'll think a lot of people's perception of Popovich is on the other and somewhere there's an interesting intersection there and I don't really even know if I have a question there but just kind of um the, the thought of of where a Popovich a Popovich a Belichick uh you know a Nick Saban uh is as a coach in this this more modern time as fans will certainly uh, or many more fans consume the products that that more left-leaning media produces. Yeah, well, I think I think he's a very unlikely messenger, right? I mean, that's probably what we we're, we're getting to. In a way, Steve Kerr, who's also been weighing in a lot on politics, is the son of an academic, right? He's sort of the kind of guy you expect to be delivering those kind of messages behind the podium. Whereas Popovich, as you say, comes from a military family, he's got this gruff exterior. And actually, by the way, funny thing about him is I believe it was on election day. He was asked by the Spurs press corps, who are you voting for? And he jokingly and dismissively said, Don Nelson. Uh, like, you know, like, <laughs> I'm not going there, right? And then all of a sudden Trump well, it's gets It's better elected. than Saban, who didn't know the election was happening. <laughs> right. All of a sudden Trump gets elected, you know, and, and, and Greg Popovich is having some of the most amazing and eloquent, uh, you know, speeches on the, on the whole political system in the United States, not the whole social system in the United States. Yeah, I know. I think it's very surprising. I think it's... You know, it's funny. I think somebody the other day said, can you imagine a football coach giving that message, right? This seems very basketball-specific. Can you imagine a baseball coach? Is Jeff Bannister going to be talking about that at spring training? Yeah, I mean, Joe Madden, maybe. I don't know. But, you know, it's hard to yeah. imagine. I think basketball in a way, and whether it's because of the kind of players that play basketball or, or just the culture of that league, which seems to be very different than the NFL, but it seems to have created this climate where coaches can come speak out. I find it fascinating. I do, too. Uh, and now the fun part. We get to talk to the people about it. Uh, Brian, <laughs> I appreciate you your that. time. What What was that? Sorry? I said I'm going to let you handle that for me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll let you get back to doing whatever you're doing out there in sunny Los Angeles. Uh, Brian, I appreciate the time. I appreciate your work. Uh, I've read a lot of your pieces, and, and you do a terrific job. Hopefully we'll catch up uh, down the road. I really appreciate it. You got it. Anytime. I'm obviously, if you listen to the show regularly, not afraid to touch on politics when they touch on sports. and. What I failed to realize before reading this article is how much of political ideology has entered the sports equation. And what's interesting is how it enters the discussion in, in those ways that I, that I didn't realize, meaning that it's not just like it, this is not going to be another segment about, oh, here goes Hoffman talking about social issues again, because it. it it really has nothing to do with that. Um, although I guess if you want to include that part of it, like now athletes that speak up are praised and ones that aren't are talked down upon much, much more than in the past. Um, and especially, you know, sure, people get shouted down when they express certain ideas and praise for others because admittedly many in the media and the the, the spectrum of, on sports talk radio, I think is more expansive than it is for the reporting side, the the true reporting media versus people like us who just get on the air and say whatever we want, uh, <laughs> give opinions with very list, very little journalistic integrity or consequences. Here, there are more conservative thought thinkers than there are. Uh, say reporting on your favorite team and or columnists especially and how that plays out is not just again praise of LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony Chris Paul and Dwayne Wade for doing what they did at the ESPYs it is a praise of 
and and a van it's not even a praise of a vantage point that is much more player friendly and i had always kind of associated that with like we're just thinking about it more we're not taking things as they are and i never connected the dots and i admittedly feel like an idiot for not doing so earlier of that being a politically liberal idea and so when you look at Brian Curtis's article on this again this is on the ringer which is Bill Simmons site sports writing has become a liberal profession here's how it happened there's a couple of quotes that jumped out he actually he starts off the article in a very interesting way talking about a literal communist who worked in uh, baseball and wound up being a really important political uh, not political but in the in the context of baseball political figure um, and was very pro the integration of of sports and he he now is uh seen in a much different light than he was at the time um but a couple of quotes that caught my eye from this article that are worthy of discussion there was a time when filling your column with liberal ideas on race class gender and labor policy got you dubbed a sociologist these days such views are more likely to get you a job and I think there can be a healthy debate on whether or not that's a good thing. I do think, generally speaking, it's a positive that we stop pretending sports exist in a vacuum. Like, that's a thing we did for a long time. I don't want my sports contaminated with essentially real life. And to a point, I understand it. Sports should be able to be an escape in a lot of ways. You know, you have your your job that's happening during the week, your Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, or your construction job where you got to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, or even worse, if you have to work some you know overnight shift building a road or anything in between, from corporate America, white collar, all the way down to the bluest of blue collar. And you just want to not think about that. And sports was a way to do that. But I still think sports, even if we're not seeing exist in a vacuum, can be that escape. It's just, it's a different escape. It's not going to be this pure, just about the game escape. You still don't have to think about your job. Unless your job is one of, you know, touches on the, the issues of that sports stars and sports leagues are dealing with. But the awareness of domestic violence issues in the NFL, the awareness of head injury issues in the NFL, we shouldn't just sweep these under the rug and not care. Let the leagues dictate what they want. We should ask more questions. We should not accept norms just because they've always been. And I I had thought essentially that this was happening more and more because we have more information now, not because the people giving us that information are less afraid to say, I lean a, p- a specific way politically. <laughs> Discussing an article I read this week that really made me think, and I love this writer because I'm a nerd when it comes to this industry, sports media, media in general. I, I enjoy learning more about our industry, and and as I'm sure many of you do about your own industries. Um, obviously, though, you care about this industry too because you're a consumer of it. And uh, Brian Curtis writes about media uh, as an editor at large for The Ringer. And he wrote an article called Sports Writings Become a Liberal Profession. Here's how it happened. And there's just some really interesting concepts in here and some quotes. We talked about one in the last segment. There's a time when filling your column with liberal ideas on race, class, gender, and labor policy got you dubbed a sociologist. These days, such such views are more likely to get you a job. And I said uh, something that I believe to be true, which is I think it's good that we don't see sports in a vacuum because, and I never 
finished that thought. Uh, the the thought, though, if if you couldn't figure it out, is because they don't. These are sports played by human beings within the constructs of of defined rules that are uh, it created within the context of the laws of the country when it comes to money distribution and there are antitrust issues. Um, and that's another thing that I think is really interesting, too, is we always look at where we are now and try to figure out how we got here. And, and then uh, we, we got to try to figure out where we're going. And if if the trend continues of more progressive, liberal, quote unquote, ideas being infiltrated into sports and sports coverage, what's the next thing that that becomes the target? The Redskins name is is on the list. It's something that eventually you run out of other stuff to be mad at. And it's like, okay, let's talk about this. And it flares up every once in a while. There are there's there are certainly things. Sports gambling. I think and, and for a lot of people would look at some of these things and go, oh, these are terrible. Uh this is this is the disintegration of America and we can agree to disagree and have discourse and exchange ideas like adults and, and discuss such, such thoughts. Um, sports gambling though, is one that I would say at this point, there's overwhelming support for. It's like one of these no brainers. Why is, why have attitudes on sports gambling changed? Because it's become more mainstream because people have not been afraid to talk about it because the fear that the leagues have and and some of the doubt we have of just assuming that the leagues were right has gone away. So there's there's one that I think a lot of more people agree upon. You know, whether we see the sports through the eyes of the players or the eyes of the owners is one that I think is is going to always be one a battle, but two a, a way to create interesting fodder for people like us because I un- again I said this earlier when we were discussing the Redskins specifically I understand why fans see things from an organizational v- vantage point does it make sense on a surface level or on a deeper level no it makes sense on a surface level because the goal of the fan is to win and in theory the goal of the organization is to win and if long as those goals align, you're going to see things from your own point of view. When it comes to looking deeper and the blue-collar fan siding with the billionaire owner over the player who is the worker, when most fans are workers, if you want to look at it in that dynamic, that makes a lot less sense. But as many topics are, they're nuanced and complicated and layered. So, other quotes in this piece that caught my attention. And this one is really interesting because it makes you think if you're, if you, so some of you may be listening to this as conservatives and going like, I, yes, thank you for finally realizing this. And this is awful. And like, by all means, I'm, I'm happy to take calls and discuss this because we're not, we're not really talking about pol- politics. We're talking about ideologies and intellectual discussion of how they integrate into sports and sports coverage. So 800-636-1067. I don't even feel like, th- like sometimes we've had some discussions that are more dangerous. I don't even feel like this one's dangerous. Some of you are going, maybe the light bulb is going on too, as you're hearing me discuss this piece or you read it and had a similar light bulb goes off. Uh, but this, this quote from the piece kind of stopped me in my tracks. If liberals have a long-standing delusion, it's that the presentation of hard data about everything from climate change to voter fraud will win the masses to their cause. But within sports writing, this is actually true. It's a hell of a observation and a hell of a, a dynamic. Again, if liberals have a long-standing delusion, it's that the presentation of hard data and then parenthesized about everything from climate change to voter fraud, end parentheses, will win the masses to their cause. But within sports writing, this is actually true. And when I had Brian Curtis on, I asked him, why does it break through? Why, why does the data, when it doesn't break through in political discussions, why does data tend to work in sports? And I'll give you my answer for his. You'll have to listen to us play this interview back tomorrow. But for my answer, 
I think it's because we keep score. As simple as that sounds. The score in sports is not open to interpretation. In politics or in other settings, whether something works or not is a matter of opinion in many aspects. And you can move the definition of success. You know, some politician on could say, hey, this program worked. And another one can say, no, it didn't, and cite the same data because their bar of success is different. In sports, we keep score. At the end of the game, someone wins, someone loses, and that's it. So over time, data says, hey, if we shoot more threes, we're going to win more. And so people go from thinking, oh, we got to, you know, oh, the NBA's gone soft. We have to bang it inside and, you know, whatever, this style of play to like, hey, we got to shoot threes because the teams that are shooting threes are winning. So sports ideologies change with data in ways that don't work in other aspects of life. Why? I think it's because we keep score. And the score is an agreed upon method with that is not open to interpretation. It's as black and white as could as a result could possibly be. Uh, another quote that caught my eye from this. What about me? And this is Brian Curtis in The Ringer. What about me? If it hasn't seeped into the preceding paragraphs, I'm a liberal sports writer myself. The new world suits me just fine. Would it be nice to have a David Frum or of sports writing making wrong-headed but interesting arguments about NCAA amateurism? Sure, as long as nobody believed them. Which I laughed, and, and I asked Brian about that quote, and he said it, it was done tongue-in-cheek, The as long as nobody believed them parts, because whether it's, again, sports politics, anything else in life, pizza flavors, you know, the important stuff, we all think that we're right. Like, we don't, we, people don't say stuff thinking that they are wrong. And sometimes even when it's not true, like who, who blatantly said, I mean, I guess, look, there are pathological liars and sociopaths and things like that who, who or, or people who intentionally try to mislead others. So, but like, generally speaking, when you're making an argument against someone else, you're not going to come to that argument saying, in the back of your head, this is wrong information that unless you are trying to be misleading, this is wrong information that I'm putting out. If I am arguing with Eric Arnold, my producer, Eric, what's your favorite flavor of pizza or favorite kind of pizza? I'm going to go with uh, tried and true pepperoni. Okay. And if I were to tell you that you're wrong, cheese is the best, plain. Why screw up a good pizza? Just get a regular slice. You're an abomination to pizza kind. I don't believe that. I would have said pepperoni too. But for the sake of argument, like, and actually that makes my point. If I were to come to, at you with that, knowing that I was wrong, like my argument has no, no validation. We, we like people that agree with us. We like to think that we are right. That is why typically when we are in arguments with other people, the first thing we try to do is find others who agree with us. Can we get the mass of numbers? And so what, why that is good is, you know, there are certain things, obviously, uh, that we agree upon as truth. And like in sports, you know, hey, this guy is a good player or not is something that is debatable unless that player is LeBron James. That's why we all laugh at Skip Bayless. Like, hey, dope, give it up. When you get to a player like, oh God, Russell Westbrook. Now, I think at this point, even Russell's past that. Give me a, like a more than a better than average, but p- player that people do. I don't want to use Kirk because that's the easiest. That's too like easy. Draymond Green or someone like that. Yeah, like how good's Draymond Green? You can debate. It's it's a matter of opinion. Um, but when he talks about you know, is it good to have a conservative sports writer? in using his quote, making wrong-headed but interesting arguments about NCAA amateurism or, or any other topic, sure, as long as nobody believed them. The as long as nobody believed them part is is tongue-in-cheek in a way because we don't want 
people presenting counter-arguments just for the sake of counter-argument if something can be agreed upon as true and factual within the, the content, the context of sports discourse. But at the same time, groupthink unchallenged over time is extremely dangerous. To not to just believe something just because it's always been, or because everyone else is saying it, without double checking it for yourself against your principles, against your your facts, against what you believe is is wrong and dangerous. So it's important to have both sides to a sports argument, a political argument, a pizza argument. And so this piece certainly made that interesting. 1067. Wrapping up the show on a Sunday with a little bit of nonsensical fun at the expense of well, I should have done it this way. At the expense of a dookie, and then everyone would be psyched. Uh, and also something John Calipari said that's interesting, and maybe a little Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant stuff too. We'll see how much time we have. My name is Craig Hoffman. This is The Hoppin' Show, Sundays 9 to noon, here on 1067 The Fan. And this week, this week, Kyrie Irving was on a road trip with his Cleveland Cavalier teammates, and Richard Jefferson and Channing Fry do a podcast which I've actually listened to a couple of episodes. It's quite, it's quite entertaining and quite uh, enlightening in a lot of ways. Uh, they do a podcast while they're on the road, and they got Kyrie to say something that I'm sure he had said before, and, and, and this, this is what he said. Kai, real quick, real okay. quick. Okay, real Go quick. Ahead. Do you believe the earth is round or flat? Look, look for, for what I've known for as many years and, and what, what I've been come taught. to believe, what I've been taught, is that the earth is round. Yes. But, I mean, if you really think about it from a landscape of the way we travel, the way we move, and the fact that can you really think of us rotating around the sun and all planets aligned, rotating in specific dates, being perpendicular with what's going on with these planets and stuff like this. How are you going to put planets in quotations? I'm going to put planets because everything that they send or they want to say that they're sending. (laughs) They thought Pluto was a planet until like four years ago. It doesn't come back. There is no concrete information except for the information that they're giving us. I was really... They're particularly putting you in the direction of what to believe and what not to believe. Yep, Kyrie, that's called science. Kyrie Irving said and he doubled down on this at all-star weekend and we learned that many other athletes think the same draymond green was think said he he agrees with Kyrie. Uh, i believe i saw stefan diggs was floating around uh he, he had turp he was floating around all-star weekend saying that that the earth is flat and from the most simplest like if Kyrie wants to disbelieve the the other planets and the sun and, you know, he doesn't understand how gravity works and all that kind of stuff and, and how the ro- Earth rotates on an axis and how that gives us day and night and he just thinks all that's magic, then fine. Uh, he can be ignorant to uh, science. But on, a, on, a, on an intellectually simple level, Kyrie Irving's from Australia. Like, he was born there. His dad was playing professional basketball. He, he, he's also from New Jersey. But he, he, he spent significant time in Australia, which is on the other side of Earth. As Kyrie Irving has taken his planes, whether they be commercial or private, from the United States to Australia and back, has he never, ever fallen off the earth? Does he realize that there are two ways he could get there? Because I wonder if Kyrie's gone both ways to Australia. If you're leaving to go to Australia from the East Coast, would you go around, like, Africa and get to it that way? And then if you're leaving from the West Coast, would you go around the Pacific Ocean and go that way? Because if the earth is flat, you couldn't do that. Or you couldn't go in theory, around the top of the earth to get from one side to the other of of the hemispheres and such, which you don't really do because there's nothing, there's no reason to go to the top. But, like, does he think it's a cylinder? 
and it's flat on top. Like, it's just, how do you, how do you think that? What, what is that? I don't know, man. I would love to, to have him. And, and of course, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, did, a, did a rap song a couple years ago and the rapper B.O.B. did this. Just, oh, man. If you think the earth is flat, good, there's this thing called the internet. Google, proof the earth is round. Spend about 20 minutes. Believe what you read from smart people and then stop, stop believing the thing that's wrong. Um, real things, real people sending real microphones. This from John Calipari was both a good rant and a good joke. We're firing coaches in midseason. You know what I'm putting in my contract? You can fire me at midseason, but you're going to have to pay me $3 million. Oh, you'll let me stay now, won't you? There's a new one that's going to be in the contract, Wayne. You can fire me <laughs> midseason, but you're paying me. I mean, it, why would I even have to think of that? Now, every coach in the country... Put it in your contract. What if Mark, Mark Gottfried goes at the end and goes on a run, gets to the NCAA tournament, which he was in four out of five years, two Sweet 16s, which is not done at NC State. What, what happens now if he goes and he wins and he gets another team? He had good players, but they're young. They're like my team. It's hard to do this with young guys. John, what are some of the things you're trying to... Fake media. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sometimes fake media laugh is bad. That was really funny. I've now laughed twice at that. When EA played it for me the first time, I laughed really hard. And that was a real laugh again. It got John Calipari, comedian, got me again. As for the substance of his rant, it was sparked by, obviously, the fact that Mark Godfrey from... NC State is deemed been fired at the end of the season. And clearly Cal, as is often happens, Rick Carlisle, who's the president of the NBA Coaches Association, always when a coach gets fired goes off. But I think in college it's even worse, man, because these kids commit to a coach and they're 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 kids, they're personalities at play here. And and to to put this that kind of burden on kids in the middle of a season seems crazy to me. Like, you got to just say, hey, Mark's our coach. Mark's our coach. And then if in the offseason you, you decide to fire him, you deal as adults with the consequences of flip-flopping. You don't put that on the kids. And his team is young, and he's got some really talented players. Um, but I get what Cal's saying, and I, and I on some level agree with him. Now, there is the great irony of, hey, let's make more money for the coaches midseason if you decide to fire me while we exploit the free labor of the college athlete. I, that that's not lost on me. But I think Cal would be open to paying players and perhaps maybe in his past has. So that's fun too. That'll do for this week's Best of Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can subscribe on iTunes. It's the best way to get this. As soon as it hits on Sundays, as always, you can follow on Twitter as well. I'm assuming that's where many of you found this, at Craig Hoffman. Facebook as well, facebook.com slash Hoffman Show. I'm on Instagram, Craig underscore Hoffman, like uh, Snapchat. Try to put it as many places as I can. And then you can click and listen and hopefully even enjoy. Uh, as for the schedule uh, this week, 1 to 4, Monday, President's Day on 106.7. The fan, then Friday night, DC's pregame, 6.30, overtime at 7, Nat's hot stove at 9, three shows, all me, back to back to back, and then we'll return next Sunday for the Hoffman Show, 9 a.m. to noon. Thanks a ton for listening. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the feedback, as always, at HoffmanShow.com as well. And until next time, enjoy your President's Day weekend, or if you already have your week.